Good evening, Poe fans. We are back with Poe Discussions with Carmen and Jeannie. And our very special guest this evening is Chris Sempner, and he is the curator of the Poe Museum in Richmond, Virginia. Chris, welcome to our Poe Discussion. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And so if you want to just kind of get, get us started and tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, as she said, I'm the curator at the Poe Museum in Richmond, Virginia. And what I do is I use the artifacts in the collection to try to tell the story of Poe's life and legacy. So I try to let the artifacts tell us what they can, like Poe's socks, for instance. What do Edgar Allan Poe's socks tell us about who he was as a person? And what do they tell us about his writing? In fact, those socks tell us a lot when I look at them. You know, they have holes in them that have been sewn back together. And imagine we know his mother-in-law, Mariah Clem, mm -hmm. did sewing projects to earn extra money for the family. So she would have been sitting over those socks, sewing them back together, saying, Eddie, can't you take better care of your things? And Mariah <laughs> Clem would also go out and try to sell his stories for him. She would hit people up for donations. Sometimes she would steal things from behind his back and sell them. <laughs> so these socks just speak of a lot of what was going on in his life. And they also have a matching silk waistcoat. And when I see that waistcoat, I realize this is a really expensive piece. It's the kind of thing that somebody would have worn for a wedding back then. Yes. And why would Poe have this? And one of the theories is that this is probably what he's wearing when he's giving his performances. And towards the end of his life, he made a lot of money by traveling and giving performances of his works. Mm -hmm. And that reminds us that Poe's poems have to be read to be really appreciated. Yes. They're made to be heard, to be fully experienced. So, you know, the tintinabulation so musically wells from the bells, 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 <laughs> from the rhyming and the chiming of the bells. doesn't really have any weight just sitting there on the paper. You need to hear it. And it almost starts to sound like the ringing of bells. So all that from some dirty old socks. <laughs> That's kind of what I do. I try to use these pieces to tell Poe's story. Yes. And when I'm not at the museum, I'm painting or writing or playing with my cats. Mm -hmm. Even when I am at the museum, I'm playing with cats. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. No, not at all. I, I was going to say, um, my cat, Poe, he's my black cat. He sometimes will make an appearance on here. Um, usually you can hear him more than see him because he doesn't like sometimes to be picked up. But anyway, back to you. Um, yeah, and I'm so glad you uh, just recited some of the bells. That's one of, um, I know, my favorites. And it just, it, I always love to read that at, well, and speaking of cats, <laughs> now what is his, is it a she or he? This is Lily. Oh, Aww. hey, Lily. <laughs> she is adorable. Um, but yes, I, I love to read the bells around Christmas time and, um, it, it's a, it's a wonderful poem. And I tell my students all the time, whenever we're reading poetry, it has to be read aloud. And so, and they get so much more out of it that way. But, um, well, I was going to say kind of leading into with what you were saying about the artifacts that you piece together post-life and kind of get some of those things. Um, tell us about, I know you do the curator scripts videos and I absolutely love them. They're, they're fantastic. Thank you. So if you want to tell us a little bit about that. Well, for the Poe Museum's YouTube page, which you just search Poe Museum on YouTube, you'll find the Poe Museum's page. I do every other week a different profile of an artifact from the collection. So we call it the curator script. It start out with just at events. I would stay in one of the buildings and I would put a table full of artifacts together and just show people these things that aren't usually on display. Mm -hmm. And it gives us a chance to really get up close and take a deep dive into different pieces like Poe's trunk or his walking stick or his pocket watch. Mm -hmm. And Sometimes we'll explore different artifacts that talk about an event from his life. Like not too long ago, we talked about Poe's record for swimming against the tide in the James River at six and a half miles when he was 15 years old. And we have documentation of that in the collection. We have a little photograph that's signed on the back that said this photograph belonged to one of the, the boys who swam in the James River with Poe. Okay. So we've, we trust try to explore oh, cats knocking over stuff. We try to explore different, 
pieces that tell a story. Mm-hmm. And the more we get into <laughs> it, I think we've done 90 episodes or more by now. We just yeah. keep finding more and more things that have their own little stories that turn up. And it might be something that's really overlooked. And the next one I'm doing is just a faux Poe portrait that's obviously okay. not Poe, but we can use that to talk about all the fake Poe portraits out there. And if you've been on eBay in the past decade or two, you've seen lots of fake Poe portraits and daguerreotypes or tintypes that people say, this is a long lost photo of Edgar Allan Poe. And they're obviously not, they look nothing like him, but anybody with dark hair and a mustache must be Poe. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what we're exploring in those most recent videos. Okay. And sometimes it's pop culture. We did one recently that was about Bela Lugosi and Edgar Allan Poe, what they have in common and how Bela Lugosi starred in the murders, of the Rue Morgue back in 1932. So just always something new. And we always try to finish it up with a little footage of the cats. Cause we found out that everybody loves the little cats and. Oh yes. <laughs> yeah, the Poe museum has two cats, Edgar and Pluto. Yes. And we found them in the shrine. Not too long ago. It was probably about 11 years ago. They were just wow. little kittens under a crate behind the shrine. We never knew who their parents were. We, saw this old gray one-eyed alley cat we thought maybe was their mother but mm-hmm. that's all we know and we took them in and they've been living at the museum ever since and now they're our tour guides our goodwill ambassadors <laughs> they're media darlings they have a instagram following yeah I, I follow so them <laughs> follow so many tours that they know the route the tours take so they just lead people from building to building that's cool the smart little animals. Well, I was going to say, if you see right behind me, I actually, I have the calendar for in December up with the cask of Amontillado and it's, um, or Amon, Amiatillado, I should say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah they're, they're very terrifying. We've also done the tail, tail heart and, <laughs> and, They've got a new calendar coming out this year where they, they're traveling around the country to all the different post sites. Oh. I just I just got that in the mail not that long ago. I um, pre-ordered it, and it is absolutely adorable. It is so cute. <laughs> now, speaking of the artifacts that you have at the Poe Museum, have they been... Or how have you curated them through donations or searches or estate sales? Kind of, I know the last time on the, um, I think it was when we did the kickoff party, you were talking about a pocket watch that you just recently acquired. So I was just curious how the museum gets most of the artifacts and how long does it usually take to verify the authenticity and uh, and do you get any fakes? I kind of guess is what I'm asking also. Oh yeah. We've, we've been around for 101 years now. So the Poe Museum has been wow. there long enough that we've received donations. They've made purchases. Mm-hmm. So artifacts come in from all different angles over the years. And we've got about 4,000 pieces so far over the course of this century. Wow. And a lot of it came from family members. There's descendants of Poe's sister's foster family. Poe's sister was taken by a different foster family than he was. She went to live with the McKinsey's. So that family gave a lot of pieces. There's different Poe relatives, descendants of Poe's cousins, like his cousin, Amelia Poe, or his other cousin, Elizabeth Herring. And they donated things. And also things came directly from Poe's literary executor, Rufus Griswold's grandchildren. So that helps me have a strong provenance and it doesn't always guarantee it's going to be authentic. One of the pieces that his literary executor's grandchildren gave us was a manuscript. Mm -hmm. And we thought, well, it's got a great provenance. It's supposed to be Poe. But when you looked at it closely, they just misidentified it. The handwriting was all wrong. It just was in a stack of Poe things. They thought it was Poe, but it wasn't. It turned out to be by John Neal. And sometimes things come all in one big mass. Back in 1928, Patrick Henry, the give me liberty or give me death person, mm-hmm. you know that guy? Yeah. Yep. His <laughs> great-granddaughters gave us their mother's autograph album. 
Okay. And it had over 121 pages full of hundreds and hundreds of literary autographs. Charles Dickens, William Wordsworth, a fake Lord Byron. They've got oh, Washington this- Irving in there, Nathaniel Hawthorne, and three Poe pieces. So you got this huge collection of literary autographs, and they all came from that one source all at once. And sometimes there's collectors who specialize in collecting Poe things. There's Susan Jaffe Tain, who's very well known in the Poe community, and she's been collecting things for the past few decades. And she's the one who gave us the pocket watch that Poe owned when he was writing the Telltale Heart, you know, those lines. And now a new sound came upon my ears. It was a low, dull sound, such as a watch makes in a velvet and cotton. Mm-hmm. I know well the beating of the old man's heart we've got that little pocket watch that he owned when he wrote those lines and she gave us Poe's engagement ring that he gave to his last fiance Elmira Royster Shelton just a few weeks before he died it has his name engraved in tiny tiny letters on the inside of the band and we just imagine that Poe was saving up for this thing scrimping and saving every last penny he had to get her that ring because we have a letter that survives where he's writing to his mother-in-law about getting Elmira the ring. And the same letter, he says, I got the ring. He's so triumphant. But at the same time, he also says, oh, and my hotel kicked me out because I haven't paid my bill. Uh-huh. So that's that really shows you what a struggle it was. And Susan Tain gave us about 75 different items. So it's a great addition to the collection. Mm-hmm. And there's always new things coming in. And Sometimes we go out and find things. I've been searching for years for this lost daguerreotype. A daguerreotype is an early kind of photograph. It's on a silver-plated piece of copper. It's taken directly on that copper plate and then developed using toxic mercury fumes. Mm-hmm. So each daguerreotype is kind of a unique object in itself. And this was the last picture ever made of Poe before his death. Two weeks before he died, they took this daguerreotype. He's sitting in a studio on Main Street, just a few blocks from where the Poe Museum now stands. And this thing's been missing since about 1905, and people have been searching for it. And I knew the last name of the last collector and was trying to find and different members of that family. At one point, one of the last, since I think it was his great-granddaughter passed away and her kids were not at all interested in what happened to his stuff so they said we're going to toss all the stuff here but i'll give you half an hour you can go through and find anything poe related you want so give me half an hour to search through the library i didn't find it but i found a first edition of poe's book the conchologist first book i found the southern literary messenger with his serialized novel, The Narrative of the Gordon Pym of Nantucket in it. So mm-hmm. a lot of good Poe pieces. We just didn't find that daguerreotype. Okay. But it's cool out. There's still things out tucked away in trunks in people's attic that have been passed down through the years that maybe nobody bothered to even look at for the past 50 or 100 years. Mm-hmm. And things still turn up. I've been contacted by people who found, oh, here's a daguerreotype of Poe's foster father's second wife and his sons, his legitimate sons, so not Edgar. Mm-hmm. And these things were just in a trunk. And it's great to see that these things are sometimes still out there and maybe just maybe we can find them if we know where to look. And sometimes it just requires a lot of patience and waiting. And like one of our most recent acquisitions of a letter, that letter the Poe Museum had been trying to get since like 1924. Oh, wow. They knew who the owner was. They'd contacted mm-hmm. the owner and said, I'll give you $50 for this letter. We think it'd be great for our new museum. Mm-hmm. And that turned down. Wow. And just wait a century or so. And we got it donated. Oh, wow. So That's awesome. Saved us 50 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> it never left the family. It was in the original recipient's great, great, great granddaughter's house and she used to keep it in a little bureau and occasionally show it to people so it's something that just always would stay with the family and and she contacted us it was she'd read through her ancestors letters and found hey the poe museum has been contacting us and 
we've got an important Poe letter, and this is something with great ties to Richmond, to Poe's childhood. And mm -hmm. so there's still people out there very generous, like Poe's pocket knife. You never really think about that Poe had a pocket knife. Mm -hmm. And he mentions a pocket knife. He mentions a pen knife in the black cat. A cover yes. your cat's ears right now, but he does say that he took the pin knife out of his waistcoat pocket and plucked out his cat's eyeball. Oh, yes. with it. <laughs> but yeah. we've got Poe's pin knife, and there's a sad story behind that. He mm -hmm. was falling in hard times, and he gave it to somebody in exchange for a loan and never pay okay. back the loan. So the friend of his, who was a cousin of... Charles Richmond, who was the husband of the woman to whom he dedicated the poem for Annie, mm -hmm. it stayed in that family until it came to the museum. And the okay. owner said that he was way out in Michigan. He said that they used to keep it in a safe deposit box and never looked at it, never really thought about it. And it just kept passing it down through the years. Okay. And now it's on display where it can be appreciated and people from around the world can come see it or they can access it on our website at pomuseum.org. We have an online database. Right. But it's great to cool. know that there are people out there who want to have their pieces shared with the wider public. That, and, that's awesome. And you never know what's going to turn up next. Maybe tomorrow we'll walk in and find something completely new. Somebody... This afternoon, we were closing the door, closing the front door, and he rang the doorbell, and he says, oh, I have a bag full of the Little Leather Library. And oh. back in the 1920s and 19, 19-teens and 20s, there were these books about three inches tall and little leather-bound books, only probably about 40 pages thick. Okay. It's called Leather Library, and he had 25 of these, and wow. some of them were books of poetry that some opposing works in them and i have to go through them tomorrow morning and find out exactly what's in there but we well, that, know that, they that would be fun another <laughs> poems book they produce one that's merged in the rue morgue okay. they produce one that, that was the gold bug and they're all small mm -hmm. enough that you could put them in your pocket and they say that soldiers who are going off to world war one were carrying these little books in their pockets just so they could pop them out and read them when they needed them and okay and these things are all in great condition. This is just something that came in today. So imagine oh, what's awesome. coming tomorrow. We could yeah. have somebody show up tomorrow with Poe's hair or something. <laughs> We've got some Poe hair, but there's always room yeah. for more because hair is not very big. That That's true. <laughs> well, yeah, nice and if they had some DNA on it so we could do some DNA testing. Yeah, you could clone him or something. That's exactly. true. Ooh, that would be, that would be very interesting. <laughs> well, I was going to say, speaking of hair and um, like artifacts and things, when we um, did an interview with Charles Wissinger, he was telling us that when he does his performances, he like kind of does his hair, like where it's, you know, coming out, like where some of the Poe pictures have his hair like that, because he obviously men wore hats back then. And so it would be fascinating if a Poe hat turned up. I I've always wondered about that. Like what kind of hat would Poe have worn? Well, he had a couple hats. He had a top hat, which was fashionable at the time. They're a little bit taller than the top hats we think of today. So okay. think closer to those <laughs> tall, tall hats like Abraham Lincoln used to wear. Yes. And sometimes okay. you look in the old photos, they look kind of silly looking. Yeah. He had one of those. <laughs> and he's also described as having a broad Panama hat that he wore in the summer. Interesting. And he was wearing his white outfit. He had a white vest and white jacket and white pants, and he'd wear the whole white suit with a Panama hat during the summer. Okay. okay. And it was a while back that someone brought to me a Poe top hat, and they said this was passed down through the family, and our tradition is that it's Edgar Allan Poe's top hat. And okay. I looked inside. There was an inscription that said, From Webster to Poe, 1850. Okay. And I guess your audience knows Edgar Allan Poe died in 1849. Exactly. That's why I was kind of like, whoa, hold on. <laughs> oh, it's a faux Poe. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it could or be he wasn't really Poe. dead. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. There's there's lots of Poes out there. There's there's even been several Edgar Allan Poes out there. 
-hmm. we have found that it's it's fascinating how many of them are out there and in all the places they're at. Oh uh, yeah, there's a football player Edgar Allan Poe, a judge mm -hmm. Edgar Allan Poe. There was an Edgar Allan Poe that's a A L L E N, so different than our A A L A L L A N Poe. But he lived in North Carolina, and there's an Edgar Allan mm -hmm. Poe house in North Carolina that's a different Edgar Allan Poe. I yep. think I was doing some research on that because my husband and I are about to go visit um, his oldest daughter who lives near Raleigh, and we're going to go um, kind of to the Outer Banks area. But I was looking for just Poe. You know, I always try to find a Poe connection, even if it's kind of twice removed that, you know, this man's named after him. Um, but I found out that that particular man owned a brick company. So I thought that was really kind of ironic with all of the walled up bricks in some of Poe's stories. So I just thought that was kind of a little funny. Yeah, that's a good connection there. Yeah. It's just kind of different. <laughs> well, Sometimes how I wonder if Poe was a Mason in another life. Like he loved to lay bricks because he writes so much about walling people up. Yeah, you never. Well, know. there's always a possibility that maybe he did some bricklaying in Baltimore. There's uh -huh. those few years when he was really struggling and not very well documented. So there was some speculation that he could have been doing some bricklaying there, but mm -hmm. hard to know because there's not much documentation those years. We just mostly know he's doing based on what he was publishing and the letters he wrote home to Alan. Okay. Okay. Well, how often do you change out some of the artifacts in the museum? What we try to do is once a month, we'll trade up three okay. cases. And mostly we're trying to rotate the paper things because paper can be damaged by light and humidity and mm -hmm. too much exposure. So we try to just change them out, but we've designed the exhibit so that, Say in one case, it's always going to be related to Poe's horror stories. Another one's going to be always about Poe's detective fiction. Okay. Another one's going to be about, say, the Southern Literary Messenger. So we can still keep the same theme so we don't have to change the audio tour each time. We can just leave the same audio tour, but switch out the artifacts. Mm -hmm. And whenever possible, we can substitute one book for another copy of that book. Okay. Or another copy of the magazine to sort of keep on the same theme. There's some pieces like Poe's childhood bed that we just always leave on display or mm -hmm. the really famous daguerreotype of Poe. We always leave that one on display, mm -hmm. but other things that are mostly paper things, we try to keep switching them out. And it also gives us an excuse to show some things that aren't usually on display. So right now at our detective fiction case, mm -hmm. it's all about the murders in the Rue Morgue. So we've got the first printing of Poe's first detective story, on display there and we've got okay. a letter from the inspiration for Poe's fictional detective it was Eugene Vidoc who was a French detective who was the father of criminology revolutionized ballistics and criminal profiling and even investigative techniques like filling in footprints with plaster so you could preserve the footprint mm -hmm. he was a master of disguise and this was an inspiration for Poe to write his detective stories so we got one of his letters. We also have film stills from different Murders in the Rue Morgue films and Murders in the Rue Morgue comic books. But now we're going to put in the mystery of Marie Roger, which is also a fun one. It's not as good of a story. It's way yeah. too long, but it was based on a true crime, the murder of Mary Rogers in 1841. Mm -hmm. The constables couldn't figure out who did it. So Poe decided he was going to step in and solve the crime. So we've got some printings of the actual case, which appeared in all the newspapers at the time. And we're going to put those right. alongside Poe's solution to the murder. Who did he think did it and why? And how did it evolve into his short story, The Mystery of Marie Roger? Oh, very cool. Oh, always opportunities to explore the same theme, but from different angles. Okay. Okay. And after that, you know, who knows? It could be his cryptography, the gold bug, where he uses mm -hmm. a treasure, a buried treasure, and an encrypted treasure map. It's kind of the plot of the Da Vinci Code and National Treasure and that cinematic classic, The Goonies. Mm -hmm. but it all goes back <laughs> to the gold bug. Yeah, that's true. 
Yeah. Jeannie, we, we haven't talked about the Goonies as much like with that connection to Poe. Oh, I know. But, you know, you, you got to wait and savor because the Goonies are an experience all their own. That's true. <laughs> well, you can never get too much Goonies. No. Goonies exactly. never say die. That's right. And That's exactly Goonies right. Goonies never say die. <laughs> you know, One-Eyed Willie is like the main yeah. man. So Yes, absolutely. Well, Chris, how, how like, a lot of people first kind of are um, – introduced to Poe in junior high, middle school, depending on, you know, how old you are. So was that your first introduction to Poe or was it earlier, later? We always like to know it's, you know. Great. So probably would have been about 10 years old. Okay. And it wasn't the English class. It was our school library. We had okay. our library in a separate building, a little trailer, a corrugated steel trailer. We go over there and, Mm-hmm. And I think the first Poe story I read was a comedy, Never Bet the Devil Your Head. And yes. I thought it was just hilarious, not just because it had a swear word in it. <laughs> <laughs> One of the characters is Toby Dammit. So we thought, oh, yes. that's cool. So you got that. <laughs> but also because it's just a funny story. It's got this folksy sort of feel. It almost feels like it was written by Mark Twain, except it predates yeah. Mark Twain's writings. Mm-hmm. And then it's it's all good and funny. There's this character called Hobie who's just rotten, rotten to the core because yes. when his mother spanked him, she spanked him with the wrong hand. Instead of spanking the bad out of him, she spanked the bad back in him. Mm-hmm. And by the time he was a year old, he was smoking and cursing and flirting with the other Gambling. babies. <laughs> and and you know, you're a kid. You think, oh, this is a funny story. Even up until the guy gets his head chopped off, you're still thinking, oh, spoiler right. alert, he gets his head chopped off. Yeah. But <laughs> this is a funny story. I follow that up with Hop Frog about this court gesture mm-hmm. who knows how to play the greatest practical jokes. And eventually he plays the greatest practical joke ever on this cruel king and his seven ministers. So I started out thinking, this Poe's a funny writer. He writes a lot of comedies. And yeah. And then when you start reading the horror stories, you got, start to see that humor that you might otherwise miss if you're not looking for it. Yeah. Like the cask of Amontillado. Isn't that great? Where the victim, Fortunato, is very unfortunate. And yes. he's going down <laughs> to the wine cellars. The wine cellars turn out to be the family catacombs with Montresor and he starts coughing this Fortunato's coughing and Montresor says, Oh, your health is precious. We must go back. <laughs> I cannot be responsible. And, and Fortunato just says, Oh, there's nothing. I shall not die of a cough. And <laughs> yeah, no, he won't. <laughs> well, I did not mean to alarm you. So it's great. And even in the telltale heart, I mean, this mm-hmm. it's great one-liners and zingers like i was never kinder to the old man than it was for the whole week before i killed it yes that's a great <laughs> line how about <laughs> this this murder every night at midnight he looks in upon the old man while he sleeps he turns on his lamp he shines a thin beam of light on that vulture eye for mm-hmm. seven long nights the eye is closed but then in the morning, he walks in the old man's chamber. He he asks him how he passed the night. Yeah. I like those little touches in Poe. Oh, which yeah. When you perform them or read them out loud, you really have a chance to bring those parts of Poe's stories to life. If you just pause yes. and just the right point, people will raise, wait a second, Poe's being funny. That's a funny Poe there. Absolutely. And I think... I know like with my students, I always, because they always focus on the horror part parts of it. And I'm like, no, you got to look deeper into this and read Poe aloud, even no, not just the poetry, but even the stories. And you're going to get more nuances out of it. And a few of my students this year have commented like, oh, I get it. I get that dark humor. And it's just, it's very exciting. And Poe's also talking about, well, what is the dividing line between a murder and somebody who's incapable of murder? Where does it start? Where does it stop? And the black cat especially, you've got a kind and gentle soul who adores his 
animals, especially his beautiful black cat. He loves his wife. But by the end of the story, he's like chasing his cat around the house with an axe and he buries <laughs> axe in his wife's brain. How did this character go from this gentle, loving character to something so dark? Exactly. And Poe's great with these unreliable narrators. The most famous example, of course, is the Telltale Heart, where yes. he's insisting, I'm not mad. Had been known nothing, but you should have seen me. You know, <laughs> wisely I proceeded with what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation I went to work. <laughs> great to see that the inner workings, Poe really tries to get inside these characters that. Yeah. In his time, people were saying, you shouldn't get inside these characters. When you read a story, virtue should be rewarded. Villainy should be punished. Mm -hmm. And then you have the Cask of Amontillado, where the sympathetic character is the villain. He gets yeah. away with his crime. He's telling you about it 50 years later. So he's gotten away scot-free. He's mm -hmm. probably on his deathbed by now. And he's still kind of laughing about what a great job he is doing. Yeah. Yeah. And with Hop Frog, once again, the sympathetic characters are Hop Frog and his beloved Trippetta. Mm -hmm. And the ones we learn to hate are the king who gets you know set on fire. That's another yeah. spoiler. Watch out. <laughs> but but uh -huh. we're we're supposed to say, you know, this this is justified here. Mm -hmm. So Poe's flipping the script. And nowadays, when we see horror movies, half the time the horror movie, the villain wins, and right, those right. five teenagers who are faced up against the slasher all die, and we're mm -hmm. supposed to be shocked by that, but we're not shocked by it anymore, but it would have been more shocking back then to see, once again, the villain won, that there's not always an easy way to escape. That's but true. But switches it up, because sometimes... The people in his horror stories are able to escape. Like, yeah, look at the sentence of the maelstrom. Mm -hmm. This guy's stuck in a giant whirlpool. If you're stuck on a little ship inside a giant whirlpool, you're probably a goner. And this yeah. guy, he's he's given up. He's so terrified. In the course of an hour, his hair turned from black to white. It's such an awful sight to see him being sucked into this whirlpool. But he finds a way out. He uses his reason. He starts to analyze the descent of different shapes and different bodies of different masses as they go inside the whirlpool. And he mm -hmm. figures out a way to escape. So that's another aspect of Poe is that his characters are reasoning characters. Yes. Like a Stupan of those detective stories. He's able to study a crime scene, analyze what seems to be out of place and other people missed. Yeah. He's able to find a letter that's hidden where all the French police can't seem to find, but Dupin figures out where it is. Or he can search a crime scene and say, you know what? The, the bruises on the victim's throat. Look at how they're spaced. Those aren't a human hand. A human hand didn't make those bruises. Who are we looking for if not a human? Mm -hmm. but it's great that Poe is making these sort of analytical characters. It's such a far cry from the typical slasher movie where it's just yeah. a bunch of scared teens running from a killer or say, hey, let's all split up. That's always great. And it always works in Scooby-Doo, so why don't we try it here and split up? We're not going to get hunted down one by one by the slasher. Exactly. <laughs> often you have a character who really thinks it out, like in the Pin the Pendulum. Every challenge they throw at him, the the hero of that story starts to analyze it. How can I get out of this? What's here? Mm -hmm. Even though it's a totally dark room, he starts measuring out the room and trying to figure out what the shape of it is. I mean, he's strapped to a table with a blade gradually swinging back and forth above him, about to chop him in half. He thinks, I wonder what I can do to get out of this mess. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I know. Yeah. Poe was a master at the, the psychological, you know, making you think as well as thinking about how the characters are thinking. Like you said, it's, it's, it is a joy to read and reread over and over again. I never get tired of going back to different short stories and reading them. And his creation of the characters help us to identify 
little bits and pieces, another whether it's the good guy or the bad guy or who, but some part of the character we as readers can identify with them, and that's why it's like by the end of the story, you're either voting for the you know the bad guy, supposed bad guy, or you're you're voting for the good guy, the underdog. It just and that's that's his specialty. He keeps it. He brings humanity into his characters and makes you see more than just the monster behind the mask. Yeah. Definitely so. Um, yeah. Well, I think, Chris, you do, um, you have performed as Poe before, too, correct? Yeah, I just sort of fell into it. Okay. <laughs> do you have a favorite you like story or poem you like to perform? Oh, it's the Telltale Heart and the Cask of Amontillado. The other okay. things, if it's poems, it's going to be the Raven because everybody wants the Raven or the bells. Yeah. The bells is always mm -hmm. a nice one that you need to hear it out loud. Yeah, yeah. But Annabelle Lee, when I do a performance, then often I'll start out by introducing myself as, as you know, Poe and wherever I am, try to tie in that location to the mm -hmm. story I'm telling, and and then maybe talk about my childhood and then you can easily quote a few poems like alone from childhood's hour. I've not been as others were. I've not seen as others saw mm -hmm. or you can finish up with Annabelle Lee. There's so many autobiographical elements from those poems that you yeah. can sort of incorporate those into your monologue okay. and just try to switch it up from time to time. I think I got started with this because one of the people working at the Poe Museum, this was several years ago, was a historical interpreter. She did okay. Ira Shelton. She did Mariah Klim. She did Eliza Poe. She did Virginia Poe. So she did Poe's mother and his wife. Oh, wow. Okay. And she had a performance. She had this summer event where they'd hired a bunch of historical performers. And I think the Poe guy dropped out. So the day before, she mm. says, well, you kind of know something about Poe. Can't you like put on a mustache and come on over and we pay? So I went over there and gave it a shot. And okay. And when I try to interpret Poe, I try to think about the, the voice that's in his letters. Mm -hmm. And is maybe in his early poetry, but in his letters, we get a good sense of who he was. And, and then you read the contemporary descriptions about how he, handled himself how he walked and mm -hmm. so that his clothes were often threadbare but he he carried himself in such a manner that you had no apprehension of that you didn't notice that these are threadbare clothes he still had the bearing and manners of a gentleman mm -hmm. and also there have been several poe interpreters over the years like think of jeffrey combs who's mm -hmm. done a show and also did Masters of Horror, the Black Cat episode mm -hmm. as Poe. It was also oh, Norman George. He did Poe's Greatest Hits. It's, you can still buy it on CD. Okay. Charles Wissinger, David Keltz. There's a ton mm -hmm. of these Poe interpreters. We can even find evidence of going back to the turn of the century. From There's an old movie from about 1915 about Edgar Allan Poe's life. Okay. And there's an actor there portraying Poe. Oh, very he, neat. He had previously been in The Birth of a Nation, and now he's playing Poe. And the reviews back then said, if reincarnation is possible, then this guy's Poe. <laughs> Over the years, there's lots of people portraying Poe. So I'm trying to figure out, well, what do they do? What's interpretation? What can you interpret? Okay. Uh, what do you just have to bring out of yourself? And one thing that I did like was Norman George, who was from Boston, did a lot of research into what Poe would have sounded like and what he right. would have talked about during his readings. He tried to interpret one of Poe's last readings and what would one of Poe's public readings have sounded like? What would have Poe talked about? And there's descriptions about how Poe stood on the stage, how he read from a scroll. He'd roll up his manuscripts on, as scrolls. He'd unravel the scrolls for dramatic purpose while he read. Mm -hmm. And they describe his accent. And when you hear Norman George read it, he reads it with sort of a Tidewater, Virginia accent. And okay, he's studied the theatrical conventions of the time to figure out, well, how do those rhymes work in The Raven? 
on this desert mm -hmm. land enchanted on this home by horror haunted. Yeah. Doesn't really rhyme up, but then he says Poe probably would have said haunted. This desert land enchanted, this home by horror haunted. Tell me, okay. tell me truly, I implore. And this probably would have left that concluding R off of Nevermore. Nevermore. Mm -hmm. And there was one of Poe's brief poems he wrote, just sort of a little couple verses he wrote to Francis Sergeant Osgood, who was mm -hmm. originally from Massachusetts. And she would have said, instead of idea, she would have said, idea. Yeah. Just her accent based on this little poem. So he's comparing her dear eye to the beautiful idea. Okay. That she would have pronounced dear eye and idea. And he would have probably said, dear eye and idea. Okay. So would have rhymed differently depending on who was saying it. Oh, that, so that's, that's kind of fascinating to think about. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. I try to. But I'm doing the plow part of the performance, try to stay with the accent when I can. But then I get into the Telltale Heart or the Cask of Montiato, I try to get into the characters there. Uh -huh. Even though I don't try to speak with an Italian accent or anything for the <laughs> Cask of Montiato. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we discussed in one of our poem plugs uh, about the language of the time period how we were still being inundated a lot for the British influence in the, uh, the English accents being mixed in with the re the dialects that we're now getting coming into with the mixture of the rest of them. Like, cause you had the Irish, you had the Dutch, you had, you know, the Hessians, you had, uh, the natives, you know, you had all of this plethora that we're mixing in together. And I've even heard some research has done that found that uh, the Shakespearean language can still be broken down, especially in the Appalachian Eastern parts of Tennessee and in Virginia, because there's still enough in there that you can trace it back to still hear a little bit of where the language was you know, evolving. So like mm -hmm. you're saying, you can't really think a lot about it because, you know, when he was writing and then when he was speaking, there was probably a, a little bit of a difference, especially whoever was reading it because of how they were pronouncing things or not pronouncing things. Cause I know sometimes I like to drop off the ends of words because <laughs> that's part <laughs> of my dialect. So and we could also look at even in addition to the mountains of Virginia and Tennessee and places, but also mm -hmm. on the eastern shore, there's a little Tangier Island where they mm -hmm. still speak with more of a British accent there. Okay. So these places have been isolated. And in Poe's day, we also think about we're not listening to podcasts and we're not watching television or the movies we're pronouncing things based on the way the people immediately around us are pronouncing them. Yes. And so there might be local variations on pronunciation. And that's why I think with El Dorado, great poem, mm -hmm. but he rhymes El Dorado with shadow. Yeah. So he would have been saying El Dorado. Mm -hmm. It doesn't sound right to our ears because we know yeah. how it should be pronounced, but that's probably the way he would have pronounced it because that's the way people around him. So instead of saying El Dorado and Shadow, he would probably said El Dorado and Shadow. Yeah. Yep. El Dorado. Kind of works there. Absolutely. Yeah. It, that's kind of it was very much a disconnect, especially between the educated versus the uneducated, because there was reform starting in the in those imposed times after he was born, the reformation and the enlightened period and all that was starting to pick up. And so, yeah. Uh, Informal versus formal language is probably the biggest thing. That's a disconnect. Yeah. And they're also sort of introducing, it's not quite formalized until the 20th century, but that transatlantic accent mm -hmm. where to sound educated, you have to do the Catherine mm -hmm. Hepburn type thing and have that weird accent. Yes. You hear a lot of the old 1930s movies. Yes. Think, yes. Did people ever talk like that? Well, they spoke like that. Because they were being taught that was the proper way to speak. Mm -hmm. The rain so that you were fine and educated. Yes. And 
but it's a total <laughs> phony accent that people are putting on. Exactly. Sounds, like highfalutin. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a little bit of that, especially in the parts of the U.S. that had a big British influence, like maybe Virginia and Boston. Some of the mm -hmm. accents are more similar to what was coming over from there. I was all, I'm always uh, flabbergasted about the antebellum South Carolina, the way that some people want to impart about the Southern Bale accent and how deep and everything it is and all this. And I'm like, yeah, I've, I've ran into a few people in that area that you can still hear a little bit, but I don't think it's as embellished as you can see in some of the... <laughs> In some of the portrayals is what I'm kind of saying when they do yeah. the old. It, I think they're exaggerated in film and TV and, and even like acting like on a uh, dramatic stage and things like that. Uh, and on some of the actors you listen to it, like I like the pale blue eye well enough. I thought it was pretty talky, but yeah, I think the actors using the Georgian accent, it's a much deeper South accent than the Tidewater accent. And sometimes mm -hmm. Some of their, their accent coaches, they think they're giving them a Virginia accent or North Carolina accent, but really it's just a Texas accent. And if you're from those parts of the country, you can tell the difference between Tennessee, Texas, yes. Georgia, Virginia. There's all little slight variations. And if you do go to YouTube, there's a lot of old videos posted, you know, videos filmed in the 1930s of veterans of the civil war people who were born in the 1840s and 1830s and it's a good source to find out well how did they speak how did they sound when you hear it mm -hmm. i know part of the, the problem is that they're much much older when they're saying this so yeah. we can't get a full picture of what it would have sound like when they were younger but you can catch some of those regional accents so that's something also to think about when trying to interpret poe is what kind of regional accents was he exposed to and Additionally, he's growing up with a guy from Scotland in his house. Exactly. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> and he spent part of his childhood in Scotland and England. He spent yeah. five years in London. So mm -hmm. how would that have affected between the ages of six and 11? What impression would that have made on him? Could, were there any parts of that that he couldn't shake after spending so long in his early years in London? Yeah, I, I've always wondered that if that did have an influence a little bit on his accent. Um, somebody I used to work with, their child watched Peppa Pig with the British accent and the child like learned to speak with a little slight British accent. And they're just very much Tennessee born, Tennessee raised. And I always thought that was very fascinating. <laughs> well, it's also uh, the use of the words. Because my uh, one of my cousins, she allowed her child to watch the Crocodile Hunter constantly mm -hmm. when he was young. He loved it. And so instead of saying, calling someone like aunt, like we usually do in the, you know, like my aunt Etta or somebody like that, he would use the Australian version and he would, he would pronounce, you know, aunt as aunt. He would always mm -hmm. say aunt. So even though they may not have the accent, it would be the different words and how they were pronounced that was being used. The diction and the connotation mm -hmm. would be a, a challenge, I would say, that Poe had to face. Yeah. Yeah, that, ma that so, makes sense. Uh, yeah, so Chris, before you became um, the curator that you are now, what did you do beforehand before you got into the museum? I mean, kind of, was that your end goal? Uh, you know, have you always worked with uh, that types of like archiving and library and stuff like that? Or was it, was it like a shock? I guess that's what I'm asking. How did you get where you are before? It now? was a roundabout sort of way. Cause I wanted to be an artist. So I studied art and I did mm -hmm. my assistantship in an art museum in graduate school. Mm -hmm. And it was a much, much bigger museum. It was the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Okay. And I'd always been interested in museums ever since I was just a little thing. And we had these nice big old magnolia trees near our house. And, you know, a magnolia tree just forms like a big umbrella. And you can get underneath it and inside all the branches. And it's just these big, thick leaves all the way around to shield you. So it's almost like a little house. 
And there's a magnolia tree that I made into my first museum. I'd gone to the Smithsonian Natural History Museum and love the dinosaurs. So I take old gnarly looking pieces of wood that I'd find on the ground and I make little fossils. I'd build little dinosaur skeletons out of them and put them on my museum. So I could have been more than five or six when I was doing this. Okay. Of course, the neighbor kid came along, this, this rough kid, you know, with the milk mustache, thinks he's all tough, riding a bike with a baseball <laughs> card in the tire, so it makes that motorcycle sound. Yes. And he came in, he destroyed all my skeletons <sighs> and all my fossils. So that night, I made my first security system. I rebuilt oh. all the fossils, put all the skeletons back together, and I had a string hanging down in the middle of the museum because I knew that if he came back, he could not resist pulling that string. Uh-huh. <laughs> so he did come back. He pulled the string and all the pine cones and dog turds and everything <laughs> fell on his head. And it was good. <laughs> A so little pilgrimage there. <laughs> yeah. I started out with oh. museums and, and was really interested in them. And what I liked about the Poe Museum in particular is it wasn't an art museum. It wasn't a history museum. It wasn't a science museum. It was something kind of different. It was about literature. It was about really ideas. Like how do you capture literature and put it in a museum? Because mm-hmm. literature exists everywhere. Everywhere yeah. you have a book or a computer, everywhere you remember a favorite poem and you can recite that poem, it's there. Mm-hmm. It's in the air really. And it can be, transformed into a different forms whether you translate into french italian greek latin spanish it's still the same poem but it transforms or you can illustrate it or mm-hmm. as we've seen people have made hundreds of film versions of Poe's stories comic book versions mm-hmm. ballets based on Poe's works operas and so how do you capture literature and that's what i liked about the Poe museum is it's really a museum about the imagination. Yeah. And we start with this one person's imagination. We show how that branches out and has inspired so many different visual artists and musicians mm-hmm. and writers and filmmakers and dancers and fashion designers, scientists, cryptographers, all these other people in one way or another inspired by this legacy of imagination that goes back to Poe and what inspired him? Where'd his creativity come from? Mm-hmm. And how did he face the challenges of life? It was a hard life for him. It yeah. was never easy. It never just got handed to him, but he was always able to co- overcome with imagination. And that's really the great tool that he used as great legacy that he left us. Like, you know, a history museum shows us the past and what was and how we can use it to shape the future. But, you know, imagination shows us what's possible. Yes. If it weren't for imagination, we never would have reached the moon. But the people Mm -hmm. who started NASA said that they grew up reading Jules Verne's works and loved from the earth to the moon. Mm -hmm. And that was inspired by Poe's story, Hans Fall. So how did a story about somebody traveling to the moon eventually end up inspiring people to go to the moon. Yeah. We're bringing imagination to life. If we can imagine it here, we can show what's possible. And eventually, maybe if it's a hundred years from now, it can happen. So that's one of the great things about imagination is that it shows us the great possibilities mm-hmm. and it is an escape. And after years of toil and struggle and surviving hand to mouth and just barely making it, it was 1849, and people were rushing to California. Thousands of people wanted to go to California. There's gold in those hills. You yeah. can finally make your fortune. But Poe wrote to his friend that he wouldn't give up the life of a writer for all the gold in California. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I just thought about this. There's something about this. He says that just the way he's able to see the world, it makes it all worthwhile. Yeah. Just to be able to create the literature that he's produced and now, you know, sure, a couple hundred years later, you can look back and say, oh, yeah, Poe was right. But at the time, how did he know he was right? How did he know that the things he was writing were going to, you know, create a new literary genre with a detective story or help solidify science fiction or influenced 
hundreds and hundreds of horror writers and horror filmmakers. Mm-hmm. How do you know that out of all the writers alive in his time, he was the one of the very few that we're still reading today. Yeah. But somehow he knew and he had faith that, you know, the creative act and following his inspiration were worthwhile. When he's about 20 years old, he wrote that he would give the world to embody just half the ideas afloat in his imagination. Yeah. Yep. And if he could do that, he'd know that he was going to be something great. He'd know that if he could just release those things that are pent up within him, he could imagine himself into greatness. And it kind of happened. So we are a museum about the imagination and we're trying to inspire future generations. That's why we have these school group tours, but it's why we go out to schools and libraries and retirement homes. We go to comic book conventions Mm. because we want to share that legacy of inspiration because you never know the kid walking in the door of the museum right now might just grow up to be tomorrow's great filmmaker or astronaut Mm -hmm. or engineer or inventor. Mm-hmm. We had a kid that came back, I believe he came in the 1980s with his family. And he wrote this about years later. He was interviewed for, I think for Entertainment Weekly. And he said mm-hmm. that his family was going through Virginia and they stopped by the Poe Museum. And he said it was just a magical experience. He traveled all the way around the Raven Room, following every verse of the Raven, this blood red room. Mm-hmm. And then years later, he grew up and became a screenwriter. You know, wrote oh, Scream awesome. and teaching Mrs. Tingle. And he was one of the Kevin Williamson's, one of the great writers, even wrote Dawson's Creek. He's a creator of that show and Vampire Diaries. And one of his TV shows he created that didn't do as well, I think it was only on the air for maybe two or three seasons, was The Following. And oh, he yes. Said, yes. Inspired by his visit to the Poe Museum as a kid. And it's all about a college professor. He's an English professor who's obsessed with Poe. And what happens if you're an English professor obsessed with Poe, you become a serial killer and you lead a band of serial killers. <laughs> His whole following of serial killers are wear Poe mask and go around killing people. Yeah. And it was a great show for the first season. Then they cut off the Poe references, but yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. Somebody who's visiting the museum today or tomorrow, maybe they'll be inspired to do something like that. So it's, it's a great place to be thinking that that's what you can inspire. And yeah, that's why we have these events like the Poe birthday bash or the unhappy hour or student yeah. tours. We do performances for the kids. That's awesome. Try to give them a good scare with the telltale heart. <laughs> nice. oh. A lot of good jumpers. Absolutely. Good. <laughs> well, what all events do you have coming up uh, here within the next month or so? I know Christmas is probably a little bit quieter just because uh, you I'm sure you're closed down for Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Well, we have an Enchanted Garden program in December. I think it's the 16th where kids can come out to the garden and do a day of crafts and listen to storytellers. But mm-hmm. then on January 20th, it's the biggest event of the year, the Poe Birthday Bash. Okay. Party like it's 1849. <laughs> and, uh, Scott Peebles, who's the author of The Man of the Crowd, he's a Poe scholar out of Charleston. He's going to come up and give an address about Poe and popular culture to kick things off. Nice. And then we have the Cold Hearts, who are there. They're going to be They're performing awesome. pieces from their performance, Edgar Allan and Ellie, Eddie Poe. So they okay. dress up as Poe, they go into character, get into the mindset of Poe as a kid and what it was like, you know, being bad is fun and that all served and will fall up the Charles Owens trio. They're going to do smooth jazz. And okay. then by popular demand, we're bringing back the embalmers. They're who great. dress up like yeah. morticians and wear little fezzes and have an octopus, usually a dancing mummy there with them. And they're going to be <laughs> performing. We're going all the way to 10 o'clock at night. So from, See, it's from four to ten, so okay. six hours of whole okay. birthday bash, and we've got drinks provided by Garden Grove Brewing, and we've got food by TB2 El Gallo and the Sweets Bar. So you have all sorts of good sweets for the birthday. Mm-hmm. We'll be switching out the exhibits again, so there'll be new things. If you came here last month, you'll see things that weren't here then, and. You never know what's going to be on display. Okay. 
but it's a great opportunity to get the po people coming from out of town. And we have a heated tent. So even if you're outside <laughs> in the garden, it's going to be warm. Mm -hmm. But you might as well go inside the buildings, too, and check out what's on display. And then stop by our home museum gift shop and get your cat calendars. Yes. Yay. Yeah. And um, I because I, I've been to the museum a couple times. Uh, my husband and I did get to go to the birthday bash back in, I think it was 2019. And, yeah, th their gift shop is amazing. And you can find all kinds of really cool Poe um, gifts and things there. So, Definitely check that out online, but in person is even better. Oh, yeah. And you can get your tickets for the birthday bash right on the website. So you have them okay. ahead of time if you need them. Okay. That's only it's just $15 po for the whole thing. And it's just poemuseum.org, correct? Yep. Just poemuseum.org. And while you're on there, you can also go, there's under collections, you can see the online collections. And mm -hmm. I think we've got about 1,400 pieces on there right now. So you can go through and read old letters or look at the first printings of Poe's various stories for different magazines. You can see close-ups of Post pocket watch or his wife's trinket box or his mother-in-law's socks. We actually have those on there, too. Okay. Nice. <laughs> cool. Lots of yeah, socks you know, we're talking about tonight. Yes. Hey, that's okay. Socks are socks yeah, are full important. circle with the socks. Yes. <laughs> well, might not understand socks are part of history and literature. So there we go. That's right. Yeah, very I, overlooked yeah. socks. And when I have a group of students there, you know, I, I point out those socks and I say, look at those dirty, smelly socks right there. One day when you guys grow up, you'll become great artists or engineers or scientists or mm -hmm. architects. And somebody's going to take your dirty, smelly socks and put them behind glass for everybody to look at, too. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Well, and Chris, I, I will tell you this. Um, for our research, we use your website, the Poe Museum website, so much. And um, we could not do what we do for the podcast without you guys. And we appreciate y'all so much. Well, it's our pleasure. That's why we're here. Yeah. And, and we've got books in the shop too. We've got Haunting Poe. It's all about Poe's afterlife. Oh, What's cool. he been up to since he died? Where's his ghost <laughs> been spotted? Okay. So, Very sometimes cool. I think he's hanging around us because, you know, I hear voices and it's like, okay, it's Carmen. She's conjured him now. <laughs> yep, you did it now. I know it. I know it. Well, Anything else you would like to add, Chris, about yourself, the museum, any kind of thing? Well, if you like to see my artwork, that's at chrissimpner.com. Okay. And okay. it's not spelled like it sounds. So I guess C-H-R-I-S-S-E-M-T-N-E-R.com. Okay. So All you right. can see artwork on there and see some of the books I've written on different subjects and then to see the Poe Museum, just poemuseum.org. We also have Facebook, Instagram, X. Yes. And TikTok. Okay. okay. We're going to try to post some TikTok videos. Okay. Very cool. And, of course, you have your YouTube channel, which is, oh. yeah. What's oh, yeah, it called the YouTube channel. <laughs> it's just, I think it's just Poe Museum. I, th okay, I think cool. so. Yeah, I think so. Because I, I do, I do follow it. And you guys have a Patreon as well. Yeah, we've got a Patreon, so you can yeah. be a part of the work and help support what we're doing, help us preserve all these artifacts and help us display and interpret them. Yes. Awesome. Yes. So definitely to all of our Poe listeners and watchers, because we'll have you know our audio on all of the podcast platforms, but we'll also show the video on our YouTube channel as well. But definitely check out everything about the Poe Museum and Chris's artwork and his books. And um, just we have had so much fun having you on here. This has been great. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's going to be good to be here. The cat has just been asleep. The whole time after she oh. jumped up on me, she just went to sleep. So we are failing to entertain her. Oh, that's not good. <laughs> Maybe you're just so relaxing that she just went right to sleep. Maybe so. Maybe so. Well, I was going to say, Jeannie and I uh, are going to, let's see, is it? Yeah, it's tomorrow. We have come up with a uh, little thing called the 
12 Days of Pomus. We have rewritten the song and we sang, sung it. And her cat was like staring at us the entire time while we were singing and laughing because we have some bloopers <laughs> we're going to share as well. <laughs> yeah, the blooper reel is like 10 times more exciting in my opinion, but okay. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> Which yeah. is usually how it works. Yeah, we definitely entertained your cat, Jeannie. So, <laughs> yeah, most definitely. Um, and then, Chris, I think you're, we talked about you coming on and joining us either in February or March for our Poe Unplugged, um, where we um, have a group and we read and discuss one of Poe's works. And so um, we'll just have to figure out what month uh, that'll work for you. All right. It's all good so far. All right. Well, great. Well, everyone, thank you so much for listening and watching. And again, check out all the things about poemuseum.org and go visit the museum, especially get your uh, birthday bash tickets and head there on January 20th. Yep. So and go ahead, Jeannie. I was just going to say, and we enjoy everyone, you know, coming and enjoying joining us on our discussions and we hope to have yes. many more people for the future and we are oh, oh. out, out. <laughs>